pay attention to the Federal Trade Commission, you're missing out. The agency does a lot of very interesting work that touches on many different parts of the economy. But there's a push at the moment to make the FTC's work a little too interesting. As its name suggests, the FTC is at its heart an enforcer of trade rules. Yet there's a movement afoot to turn the agency into something closer to a market central planner. Look no further than a memo circulated around the FTC last September in which Chair Lena Khan set forth her vision and priorities for the agency. The memo discusses economic, quote, macro effects and, quote, root causes, and it takes for granted that the agency, quote, shapes the distribution of power and opportunity across our economy. Last summer and fall, in the first few months of Khan's tenure as chair, the FTC engaged in a flurry of activity. Most notably, perhaps, was the agency's repeal of a bipartisan 2015 policy statement that had made the promotion of consumer welfare the principal guide of the agency's antitrust policy. Then, beginning last October, the agency became relatively quiet, as for months it lacked a fifth commissioner. Just a couple of weeks ago, however, that changed with the confirmation of Alvaro Bedoya. With the FTC now restored to a 3-2 Democratic majority, we can expect a lot of activity at the agency in the months to come. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. What a perfect time it is to have today's guest on the show. I am so very honored to be speaking with FTC Commissioner Noah Phillips. We live in a contentious era. Uh, Commissioner Bedoya, for instance, was just confirmed on a 51-50 vote with a vice presidential tiebreak. So it is worth noting that in 2018, the Senate confirmed Commissioner Phillips to a seat on the FTC by unanimous acclamation. That was well-deserved, and I say so even though the commissioner, ever modest, was downplaying the achievement before the show. Uh, I hope someday he gets a similar vote uh, for a seat on the DC circuit, my personal wish. Commissioner Phillips, welcome. Corbin, it's great to be here and thank you so much for having me. Um, there's so much to talk about, so I won't do too much table setting, but I'm a big fan of the work that you do. Um, and I should offer the caveat that is required from someone in my position, and that is what I'm gonna say is just my view and not necessarily the view of my fellow commissioners or the commission as an institution. Much appreciated commissioner. I have so many topics that are already on the cutting room floor provisionally, um, but I, I hope to cover as much ground as we can here. There's so much good stuff. Um, I think the best place to start is with, as I sort of highlighted in the intro, the effort to turn the FTC, which uh, is neither a legislative body nor an entity fully accountable to the executive, you know, independent agency, uh, into something that shapes the distribution of power across the economy. Those are strong words. Um, I don't think it's a secret that a big part of that program is likely to be a push to aggressively expand the scope of FTC rulemaking, uh, and in particular, unfair methods of competition rulemaking. Um, so could you start off by telling our listeners what that UMC uh, rulemaking is and then explain whether you think uh, the FTC has the authority to make such rules? Sure. 
I think the best way to begin to understand what we're talking about is to go back a little bit in history. In fact, go back quite a bit. So back when Congress was thinking about creating the FTC, there were two big ideas. One was that we would have a law enforcement operation. The other idea is that we would be a kind of think tank for the government, which is actually a role that the FTC began to serve after it was created and continues to serve today. If you look back at some of the progressive era and New Deal era economic regulation, some of it starts with studies conducted by the FTC. And this is a time where Congress doesn't really have a lot of staff. And I think this is probably part of what the court in a case called Humphrey's executor during the Roosevelt administration meant when they called our agency quasi-judicial and quasi-legislative. We were kind of helping out the legislature. The compromise that Congress struck when it created the agency, you know, in the teens under the Wilson administration was that we would do both. We would do law enforcement and we would do have this sort of super study power. We still exercise that study power and still do that law enforcement today. Buried within the provision, the part of the statute dealing with that study power, which is Section 6 of the FTC Act, is a provision called 6G, which says something to the effect of, we can make rules to effectuate our jurisdiction. And from 1915, when the agency opened its doors, until roughly some point in the early 1960s, Everyone thought that this meant some combination of two things. Number one, housekeeping rules. How do we do the practices that we do? How do we organize our administrative court? How do we conduct the studies that we're supposed to conduct? And of course, the language appears in section six in a provision having to do with the classification of corporations. And some people thought it might also mean that we should issue guides, which we used to do. We would convene members of the business community. We would do studies and we would say, based on our expert opinion, here's our advice as to how you can stay on the right side of first the antitrust and later the consumer protection rules. But in the early 60s, as far as I can tell, eager beaver lawyers at the agency decided that this provision meant something else. They decided that it meant rulemaking, or as we normally refer to the practice today, regulation. They decided in the 1960s that whether it was consumer protection, which is a mission that we got during the New Deal, or it was antitrust, our mission from the get-go in 1915, not only did the agency have the ability to bring cases or help advise Congress on the law, we could tell everyone what the law was. And we could do it in the form of a regulation subjecting you, um, you know, subjecting really any part of the economy that we wanted to that central planning that you mentioned. And after that point, that aha moment, that discovery of power in time, the agency started making a bunch of rules. So one of these rules was challenged in the courts and it was upheld. That was the rule that at the time put those numbers on the gasoline pumps that we all see today. This is the octane rule, which we still have. 
Now, the particular history of the octane rule is interesting in and of itself, but we needn't dwell there. A series of what I think anyone today would call activist judges, including some really important and famous activist judges named Skelly Wright and David Bazelon, looked at our statute and they said, you know, we're not sure this gives us the answer. And then they looked at the legislative history because that was cool at the time. And they said, well, this doesn't really give us the answer, but we have a policy in the courts. And our policy is to allow agencies broad authority to make rules because that makes the administration of their jobs more efficient. And so because that is our judicial policy, we believe the FTC can make rules like this and they upheld the octane rule. Now the octane rule wasn't a competition rule. It was more of a consumer protection rule. Uh, but the court upheld the thing. And in fact, by then, the agency had made one competition-related rule. Uh, it governed the very important commerce that goes on between manufacturers and distributors of men's and boys' tailored clothing. Um, the agency never enforced that rule. Uh, it was pulled down during the Clinton administration. Um, but that's, uh, that's basically the idea. Why does this matter? I want to spend a moment on this. You read some quotes from the chair with a pretty broad vision of what the FTC can and should accomplish in a society. And I think it's fair to say that that vision is echoed in the president's executive order from last July, which contemplates us using competition rulemaking authority. And the bounds of it seem pretty broad. So they seem broad for one reason, because the executive order has us making competition rules on labor, on pharmaceuticals, on devices on privacy, on and on and on, all of this within the rule, the rubric of unfair methods of competition. The second reason it seems pretty broad is because of what you talked about earlier, which is that we had a statement that said what we thought our Section 5 authority applied to, which under the statute is unfair methods of competition. But one of the first things the chair and commissioners Chopra and Slaughter did when they got into power was pull that statement down. And if there is a limit that they see to their power, they certainly haven't articulated it yet. Thank you so much. You, you covered what could easily be sort of an hour lecture unto itself very pithily. So I appreciate that. You mentioned judges in the 70s, um, the National Petroleum Refiners decision that you referred to with Judge Wright um, is a classic of this genre from that era that um, the way I might describe it is, well, Congress, you didn't tell us we couldn't. Uh, you didn't put into your law a list of uh, 200 and don't do this and don't interpret it that way and don't interpret it that way. And since you didn't make that list, we get to do whatever we sort of imagine. And a similar place that that happened, I was speaking about the cutting room floor. I doubt we'll get to uh, Section 13B reform, which is a pity, but um, it's a similar thing. The FTC comes up with creative arguments to expand the 13B authority and um, it leads to trouble down the road. Why does it lead to trouble down the road? Because uh, basically the reigning philosophy in the judiciary changes to one of uh, stricter textualism. In the case of 13B, the agency used the word injunction uh, and, and convinced courts to kind of expand that to equitable monetary relief. And if there's anything we are taught from its uh, decision called AMG Capital, uh, this was a decision by the Supreme Court recently where they unanimously um, 
pulled that interpretation back to the text. Um, they did that after decades of the FTC um, using that authority expansively and convincing a lot of courts of appeals. Um, the signal is that when national petroleum refiners and the interpretation of UMC comes back to the courts, uh, it's going to be in a very different environment than what we saw with Judge Wright and national petroleum refiners. Specifically, it's a different environment, not only um, in terms of how they interpret text, but also in terms of how they're looking at the Constitution these days. So there's rumblings about the non-delegation doctrine, and there's rumblings. You mentioned Humphrey's executor. You know, you have a protection from being removed by the president, um, you know, for cause removal. Uh, do you see a broad interpretation of UMC rulemaking bringing the agency into danger, would be the word I, I might even use, uh, where the non-delegation doctrine or um, a curtailment of Humphrey's executor actually leaves you guys with less authority than you started out with. So let me, let me talk to a few different issues and, and end with the danger. Sure. And I, I piled a lot on you there. So please. No, no, no. That's fair. That's absolutely fair. So one, one trend worth noting is the development in the way that the courts read authority given by Congress to agencies. One of the things that we've seen a lot lately out of the Supreme Court time and again, we saw this with the eviction mandate, right? We saw it with the vaccine mandate, is the court saying as loudly as it can, and especially when the matters under consideration are ones of vast economic importance, implicate authorities normally reserved to the states, which includes economic regulation, that where Congress wants to give agencies authority to make rules, where they want to give us authority to regulate, they have to be clear. That's a big message. It's coming out, you know, marquee, bright lights from the Supreme Court. And if we take seriously the analysis that the D.C. Circuit engaged in, in national petroleum refiners, one thing we know is that Congress wasn't clear because the court says that. So maybe you could argue the court was more clear, but I think that's a pretty difficult argument to sustain, especially since I can't think of anyone who ever surmised that what the court was doing in writing this language in 1915 and not talking about it was all of these different rules that the president of the United States now says we have authority to promulgate. This is called the major questions doctrine. It's a feature of statutory interpretation and administrative law to a lesser extent. Um, I think it's a real problem for this theory. But there's another problem, and you alluded to it earlier, and that is this. Now a majority of justices on the Supreme Court seem to be pretty clear that they are interested in exploring something called the non-delegation doctrine. The doctrine is basically this. Congress can't give up legislative authority. It has to articulate, this is the court precedent on it, some intelligible principle that gives a guide. Um, but it, if it gives total authority to the agencies to say whatever they want, make up whatever rules they want, then it's gone too far. It's literally made them legislators. Why is this relevant? So first is that a majority of justices have indicated an interest in looking again at this doctrine. The other reason it's relevant is that the granddaddy case of all of this is a case about the National Industrial Recovery Act 
called Schechter Poultry. Now, Schechter Poultry is a fascinating case in a variety of ways. Um, and some of the conduct that the government was involved in was really nasty and even anti-Semitic. But that's not what's relevant here. What's relevant here is the following. The thing that the court looked at and said, wow, that's too much power for the executive branch from Congress was a bill or a law that said, President Roosevelt, you can make codes of fair competition. The FTC Act says unfair methods of competition. These aren't the same words, but they're pretty darn close, or at least they're kind of converse of one another. At the time, of course, because this was a case in the 1930s, challenging the New Deal, we all remember that the switch in time saved nine, and the court started pivoting on these issues. They knew about the FTC Act. The FTC Act was already more than 20 years old, but no one at the time thought the FTC Act meant making regulations. And this is a critical distinction. You have virtually the same language. You have a court interested in looking at what Schechter poultry means. And you have an agency supported by the President of the United States who basically think there are no limits to the regulations that we can make. Um, and that is a problem. It is a statutory problem. It is a constitutional problem. I also think it's a problem as a matter of policy because it's not a good idea, um, but it's a problem for the agency. And you, you asked a question about the risks to the agency. Well, I'll throw one out. It's possible that the court doesn't agree with me in terms of whether we have the statutory authority. And it's possible that the court doesn't agree with me that even if we did, it would be a violation of the Constitution. But any way you slice it, nothing is more likely to get a court looking at the scope of our authority generally under unfair methods of competition, not just in terms of rulemaking, but in terms of cases we can bring than promulgating regulations under it. Um, the Supreme Court has spoken to the scope of unfair methods of competition. Lower courts have spoken um, to the scope of unfair methods of competition. And those courts have been pretty skeptical. Those decisions, you can look at them. Um, but I can't think of anything more likely to draw a lot of scrutiny as to what exactly the limits of our statute are than us engaging in rulemaking, uh, the total potential scope of which we view as unlimited. And I... Um mentioned also removal during my question. I will not ask you to opine on the nature of your job security, but I look at it. And one of the main arguments that I see on the other side for maintaining what you called, you know, mentioned the intelligible principle standard, which is this very loose standard for non-delegation. You could definitely argue that it's ahistorical. They say, well, but if Congress is pushing that authority of the executive, that's still Congress's choice. And it's still in this democratically accountable branch, the executive but um, that argument, if that's true, and if that bucks up this argument for a broad, unfair methods of competition authority, then uh, it raises a huge problem as to why it's an independent agency insulated from democratic accountability that's able to do that. I mean, where it's so um, I think it just raises all kinds of problems. Um, but anyway, you, you mentioned it's also a policy uh problem. It's a bad idea. You had a piece recently at Truth on the Market, a great blog for anybody who follows these issues. I recommend it. 
Um, and you got into uh, what should be sort of basic principles of antitrust analysis uh, in terms of, of moving away from rules and wanting to get into uh, case-by-case analysis and how this uh, defies that trend that's gone across decades. Could you tell us a bit about what you said there? Sure. <clears throat> so if you look, broadly speaking, at the trends in antitrust law over really my lifetime, right, since the late 70s at least, one of the things courts are definitely doing, they're doing it in cases that favor defendants, but they're also doing it in cases that favor plaintiffs, like the Supreme Court's recent decision in NCAA versus Alstom, is that courts are saying, hey, the rules that we courts have made um, either have to be very well supported in terms of condemning conduct that is clearly bad, clearly anti-consumer, or we ought to evaluate under what we call the rule of reason in antitrust law, which is basically a specific look at the case. We're looking at the marketing question, we're looking at the facts in question, we're trying to understand the conduct. We're not just going to proscribe it, to reject it outright as violative of the law um, because it kind of looks a little bit like something else. There's analogical reasoning, of course, that's common in Anglo-American common law, but um, we're not going to condemn outright conduct that isn't generally bad, which is, of course, a very sensible policy position. Some conduct is, right? You think about price fixing or market division, things like that. But over time, the trend of courts has been to take things that are considered per se bad and where they're really not all the time bad, evaluate them under the rule of reason. Um, we hear a lot about new Brandeisians. The best explanator of the rule of reason is, of course, Justice Brandeis himself, who understood that you want to take a careful look at business conduct before you throw it in the garbage. Why does this matter? So over time, the courts are saying to themselves, we should be very careful about making rules. And they're doing it in the context of per se versus rule of reason. They're doing it in the context of uh, what we call quick look or um, other similar shorter versions of the rule of reason. Uh, at the FTC, we call it inherently suspect. Um, and there was a case called 1-800-CONTACTS where a bunch of commissioners thought that we ought to condemn conduct as inherently suspect. I disagreed with that and the appellate court agreed with me. So the courts are moving away from these rules, but this would be the agency doing two things. Number one, saying, ah, but we'll just make it as a rule. And so I think if we're, especially if we're playing in the space that the courts have previously identified as subject to the rule of reason, us saying no, it's in effect a per se violation, not just procedurally problematic, but substantively contrary to where antitrust law is. And I think that's that's a real problem. And uh, one sign that the FTC doesn't actually have authority to make UMC rules in the first place is that after um, the FTC came up with its rulemaking theory, Congress did ratify its ability to make unfair and deceptive acts and practices rules. Um, and that 
law, I think relates to your answer here because it sets forth a lot of requirements for you to guys, for you, uh, the FTC to make such rules. And one of them is that the rules have to be defined with specificity. Um, as far as I'm aware, uh, if you guys make UMC rules, you, you can go completely around sort of all the UDAP requirements and basically just do what's known as APA rulemaking, Administrative Procedure Act. Um, so if I read this correctly, uh, you wouldn't have to define things with specificity. Why does that requirement exist? Well, part of it is so that people have notice of what they cannot do because they're looking at civil penalties if they violate one of your rules. So it seems to me there's a concern that not only will you go into rulemaking land in antitrust law going against the principles you just described, but that the FTC actually will be fully able to just sort of make mush rules that give you guys lots of flexibility, but regulated entities uh, no clarity. I mean, how real of a fear is that? Yeah, I mean, I would argue that even under the review that courts do today of APA rules, if this power exists, the mushier the rule, the more problematic ground the agency would be standing on and trying to justify it to courts, because courts, of course, have rules for rules. Um, but I think the issues that I'm raising in terms of running contrary to substantive antitrust law, depending how you do it, the statutory problem, the constitutional problem. And by the way, the major policy problem of redefining how the whole of the economy works because a few FTC commissioners thought it was a good idea. Let's not lose that as a substantive policy problem. I think even if the rules you're writing are more specific, uh, which wouldn't raise this issue of mushy rules that you just raised, I think we still have a lot of problems here. I'd like to touch on another important area of your work, uh, finally getting off of rules, although they warranted that much attention. Um, mergers and merger guidelines. Um, the FTC and the DOJ are looking to revise their merger guidelines. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, that should be done periodically. Uh, you and Commissioner Wilson each um, issued a statement when this was announced this would be occurring, basically applauding the effort, but raising a few concerns. And I thought you did a really good job of hanging a lantern on the fact that uh, guidelines are not the law. They are generally trying to encapsulate the law. I think that's the goal. Um, but there is certainly the potential, uh, I, my word's not yours, that the, this could head off the rails. And who knows what we'll see, uh, given some of the other things we've seen from this administration. Um, I think those of us on the outside looking in have concerns about what these are going to look like. Um, I certainly don't want you to have to speak to anything that is currently confidential within the agency, but to the degree that you can tell us sort of what's going on or what's on your mind uh, about these, that would be great. Sure. So let me start with, you know, what are good guidelines? I think more than anything, good guidelines are explaining to private parties that would come before us with merger plans and others what it is we're doing. That is, they're more descriptive than they are prescriptive. They're not an agency opportunity to rewrite the law, because of course we can't rewrite the law. We are bound by the statutes and we are bound by judicial precedent. And there has been judicial precedent on mergers uh, for quite some time. So Good guidelines, I think, um, which do stand to be updated, and there are things that are worthy of consideration without doubt, but good guidelines would describe accurately what we are doing. 
in merger cases, we often see the courts referring to guidelines. And some of that is, I think, because the agencies promulgate them. But some of that is also because the parties don't contest them. They're a shared, they're sort of shared agreement that this is a sensible approach. And the court always says something to the effect of guidelines are not law, you know, but we look to them as instructive. And part of that is the parties aren't fighting about the guidelines. They're fighting about the application of the guidelines to the case. The further we go off of the rails of judicial precedent, the further we depart from consensus economics about some of the issues in question, the more we try to use guidelines to somehow rewrite the law, which is not what guidelines do, I think the more trouble we could get in. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that any of that is going to happen, but I do have a little bit of worry, and I'll explain part of my worry. One of the really interesting things is that beyond pizzazz, we haven't seen a lot new on antitrust from the administration. But two areas, or really one area where we've seen something new is mergers. One is the prospect of new guidelines, okay? And the other is the sort of fundamentals day-to-day of how we're doing merger control. And I gave a speech a few weeks ago called Disparate Impact, looking at some of the different new policies that are being implemented at the antitrust agencies, and especially at the FTC, with regard to merger control. And I teased out a few themes, and one of those themes is this. The policy we seem to have isn't really antitrust so much as it is anti-merger, meaning we're doing a lot of things that aren't particularly good at sussing out bad deals or stopping bad deals, but rather we're just kind of raising the cost of deals across the board in a way that isn't specific to whether they're problematic, and in fact, are likely over time to be make life more difficult for smaller companies or other companies doing smaller deals than for the big companies and the biggest deals that antitrust reformers reportedly have in their sites. So we're refusing to grant early termination. That doesn't hurt the big guys. That only hurts the people that no one was interested in to begin with. Why are we doing it? There's no real reason other than to sort of tax M&A, to raise the cost of doing business to companies, whether it's likely to create, whether their transactions are likely to create problems or not. Um, I think that is regrettable. And one hope that I have is that that mentality doesn't find itself written down in new guidelines that we might promulgate. Um, As I look across the questions that the DOJ and the FTC put out as they seek comment for their updated mergers, there's a lot in there. It covers a lot of ground. And, you know, I'm no neo-Brandeisian, so a lot of the stuff that you're going to say if we were to have a nuts and bolts discussion of antitrust would be music to my ears. But I suppose the strongest thing I can see uh, and and bring to you and, and ask whether we need to rethink things when it comes to the consumer welfare standard is the fact that uh, some of our largest social media companies and, and much of the big tech world, they're providing products that are free, certainly free of charge. You know, you, you may pay in other ways. Um, and the consumer welfare standard is often caricatured by those who don't really understand it as just being about low prices. And that's wrong. Consumer welfare standards is about prices. It's about innovation. It's about product quality. But it does seem to me that prices are a lot easier to analyze than innovation and product quality. So 
everybody can point to the past and say we've established this or that in antitrust, but I do think the neo-brandizings at least are raising a fair point if they say, look, these products raise a new challenge. Um, how much mileage do you think they get from that, though? Does that truly put a chink in the armor of the consumer welfare standard? Is there some way that we re need to rethink how we look at those products? Um, or do you think the consumer welfare standard looking at innovation and product quality is, is up to the task? So I think reevaluating how we look at products in zero price markets is perfectly within the consumer welfare standard. Um, I think you can absolutely, oh, I'll start with a story. When I was in college, I heard Joel Klein, who was the head of the antitrust division at the time and was administering the Microsoft case, give a lecture. And there was a student in the crowd, this is the 90s, there was a student in the crowd who asked him, well, if Microsoft wants to give away Internet Explorer with the operating system for free, what's the problem? And Klein responded, free is a curious price. And what he meant is that we have to look at the competitive dynamics and what's going on in the transaction, whether the nominal price is zero or not. And I think that remains true today. One of the things we might be able to accomplish in guidelines that could be helpful is putting a little bit of meat on the bones of how we're going to look at direct effects, right? Not just market definition and the proxies we sometimes use for competitive effects, and also maybe saying a little bit more about how we look at quality, highlighting some of the cases we've done in the past where we've looked at things like innovation. I mean, I think blocking the NVIDIA arm merger, which was a 4-0 vote at the FTC, is an example of that. But I want to say the following. One thing I see a lot, like on Twitter and in some columns that you will read in this, that, or the other place, every time anything bad happens, invariably there's one or more people who gets up and is like, aha, that's a competition problem, right? Anything that a company that they don't like or really just any company does badly, the person invariably says, ah, oh, this is because we have a lack of competition. It's a sort of free market idealism that, you know, the most free marketed libertarian would never espouse, that every problem you see could be solved if we had competition. It's a very odd worldview, especially from a group of people that are much more interested in regulation than they are competition. But whatever. Okay. The critical thing is this. Not everything that is bad in the world stems from a lack of competition. And I think the agency should be careful in trying to understand where something bad that we see, price effect or otherwise, results from a lack of competition, or whether it's just, you know, some sort of externality that is, that comes along with um, normal competition. Well, and I personally think a big part of, of what drives that attitude um, goes back to my topic of democratic deficit and uh, the difficulty that we have as a society in uh, making bipartisan legislation and passing things through Congress that aren't thousand page mega bills. And people uh, naturally, I, I think this is understandable, they start looking for other solutions, uh, often solutions that are not uh, allowed within our system. And it's been interesting to see. Uh, I've watched a lot of your stuff. I mean, I do all the time, but also in prep for this and seeing you have to explain to audiences sort of the schoolhouse rock 
reasons that it's not appropriate to say we couldn't get it through Congress. Let's see if we can ram it through the FTC. Um, anyway, short rant of mine over. The Fifth Circuit recently issued a ruling um, in a case called Jarkesi versus SEC. And normally I would not expect uh, virtually anyone I interview who was not directly in a case to suddenly be aware of a court of appeals decision that was handed down. But this one was pretty tremendous. I mean, it made a lot of waves um, as implications for the use of Article I administrative tribunals. Um, the Fifth Circuit held that uh, a person facing a fraud charge has a right to a jury trial, which is a big problem for an Article I administrative court like the SECs uh, or like um, the FTCs potentially. Um, also made a non-delegation ruling um, saying that the SEC, it was problematic that it had unfettered discretion to decide whether to bring a case in its own tribunal or a court. And then for good measure went on and um, said that there are problems with the ALJs, the administrative law judges, double for cause protection. I mentioned that you have for cause protection as a commissioner um, well, at the SEC, you go another layer down and the person who answers to the SEC uh, also has that protection. And that's uh, a problem under a Supreme Court case called Free Enterprise Fund. Um, do you have a reaction to Charkesi? And then let me throw in just for good measure that the FTC currently has a case Axon versus FTC before the Supreme Court. That's a slightly different principle. It's asking, can a person bring these kinds of arguments in a federal court or do they have to start in your administrative tribunal and raise them there? Um, and just, I wanna be very general and say, I'm bringing up the topic of, of administrative tribunals and I'm interested in your thoughts of whether it's a good system or you have uh, a, you know, concerns. Do you think the FTCs is working well? Um, I, I throw it to you. So there's a lot in this question, and let me start with this. If you go back to the history with which I started earlier, which is that the agency is designed by Congress decades after the passage of the Sherman Act as like a group of experts with special investigative powers to go look carefully at markets, to go look carefully at conduct within those markets and say, you know what? That's an unfair method of competition. Hey, courts, look at us. And there's a provision in our statute that says if you're coming out of our administrative tribunal, we get deference. That's in the statute. Why? Because the idea is that we're having sort of this advisory effect. One of the things I like about our administrative tribunal is the ability to do that. And I'll give you a citation for this. So we had a case involving pay for delay agreements not so long ago. This is called the impacts case. And I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds. The Supreme Court had opened the door that settlements of these patent lawsuits about pharmaceuticals within the scope of the term could be illegal under the antitrust laws. Um, that's another case called activists. And this was the first time the FTC was seeing one of these cases in its administrative court and one of the things we did in the decision that we published, and this was a 5-0 decision, is we didn't just look at the case. In making one of our holdings that the companies could have had a less restrictive to competition way of doing what they were doing, was we looked at all of the knowledge that we had institutionally. We looked at the economics. We looked at the data. Um, we brought our institutional expertise to bear to explain to the court that this 
thing that the parties did was illegal. And that was ratified by the Fifth Circuit, the same circuit. It was ratified 3-0, the same circuit that issued the Jarkizi case. When we are doing our best, I think there is an important role that an administrative tribunal can play. But there are a lot of concerns that attend an administrative tribunal. One is that it kind of looks a little bit like the agency is judge, jury, and execution. Some of the concerns are the kinds of things that come up in the Jarkizi case. Some of the concerns are, you mentioned Humphrey's executor, although that applies to the whole agency. Those are all sorts of issues that people can have. Let me say the following. If the Axon case ends up in the ability of a party collaterally to attack our administrative tribunal, it's probably going to make that more difficult. And we'll see what happens there. But the other thing I think is really important to consider here is that what are the judges doing writ large? Whether it's non-delegation or other features or features of the administrative state, the courts are taking a careful look at the way in particular independent agencies have been structured in light of what the constitution requires. They're taking a careful look at what agencies are doing in terms of the regulatory authority that Congress granted them or whether it granted them regulatory authority. And as we saw in AMG, even in particular cases, they're looking carefully at the statutes that agencies have in terms of the remedies they can get and the kinds of cases they can bring. And when you bring all of this together, what I think you find um, is a hostile environment if what the agency wants to do is get out over its skis. And that is one reason that I think we should. Um, speaking of potentially getting out over your skis, um, you don't have to agree with me there. Um, the FTC's Rule Five, uh, uh, Section Five M authority. Um, do you think it is being used appropriately right now? Um, basically, you're looking at a situation where a regulated entity gets uh, potentially notice of a ruling, could be a ruling from a long time ago that doesn't necessarily look quite on point to their activity, uh, uh, facing potential civil penalties if they violate that ruling. Um, please feel free to adjust my explanation there, but um, uh, are you satisfied with how the, the 5M power is being used at the agency? So let me say this, I have no problem with what we're doing thus far. So just to back up for your audience a bit, so yes, we've got pretty broad words uh, in our statute. It's unfair methods of competition or unfair and deceptive acts and practices on the consumer protection side. Congress has since given us quite a bit of guidance on what unfair means for purposes of UDAP, that is unfair and deceptive acts and practices, consumer protection. But nonetheless, um, by design, I think the statutes give us some leeway to go out there in the world and identify conduct that maybe Congress hasn't yet identified as bad and declare it bad on our own. That's by design. One of the problems that this has raised from the beginning is that where people aren't on notice that what they're doing is bad, it makes no sense to penalize them. Because saying drive at a reasonable rate doesn't give you real notice of what the speed limit is. Um, and so with a penalty, the purpose of which is to deter the conduct, you don't know what not to do. But if I tell you, you can only drive 65 miles an hour, you're on notice. 
And so it's okay to penalize you. So why are we talking about 5M1B? Our statute says normally you don't get penalties, but if you have a rule, i.e. everyone is on notice, you can get penalties. If a company is under order with us and they break the law that the order establishes for them, like the Facebook order or yesterday, the Twitter order, those companies are on notice of those kinds of conduct. And so we can slap them with a penalty. No notice problem there. The most interesting um, and lately novel, because we hadn't used it in a while. And very much what I was alluding to, yes. Right, right. Is 5M1B. And this is if you party are aware of a decision in another party's case, but you know what the rule is and you violate it, it triggers penalties. So what we've done lately is we've sent some letters about conduct that is bad um, and we've put citations in. And in theory, we could get penalties against those companies because they were aware because they got the letter about these other decisions. But the law on 5M1B um, requires what's going on in the case that we want to penalize to look a lot like the case that was decided. And so you mentioned some older cases. The rubber, what we've done so far, which is send the letters on basic principles. I'm all good with that. Um, the question is, later on, if we're doing a law enforcement action and we're claiming the party was on notice, one of the questions is going to be, how close is that conduct to the rule of which people were on notice. And I think that's kind of where the rubber may, may meet the road and we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Um, very curious what you think about um, a potentially brewing, I mean, I'm kind of speaking in rumor here, but a dispute over the history of the Sherman Act and potentially its legislative history and its original understanding. Um, do you feel that the consumer welfare standard adequately encapsulates the original understanding of how the Sherman Act should be uh, applied in uh, you know, the realm of antitrust? Um, and is there potentially a debate of that going down the road? Is this going to be a real issue? Or have I just asked you, you know, a very academic question? Well, look, I think the courts have been looking at the Sherman Act for 132 years. They've said a lot of words about what it means. Um, there's legislative history. We all know how courts think about that. And I guess there's some differences in some judges about how to think about that. But reliance on legislative history has been a little less cool. I think fundamentally what antitrust law is about, and this is reflected in the FTC statute, is competition. And that's not a word without meaning. And I think it, it tells us a lot already in particular about a lot of the debates that we're having. So one thing I like to think about is, is the conduct in question, you know, impeding competition or not? I also like to think about what is the effect that competition would produce? And this goes back to the issue that we were talking about earlier with some really grand claims of what, if we had more competition, we would see. Uh, claims that don't always resonate in reality. You know, one way that companies win in the market, in fact, the critical way that they win in the market is by serving their customers, lowering prices, improving quality, all the things that we talk about being consistent with the consumer welfare standard. Now, some of the other things 
that people talk about the competition laws helping are like the lot of labor or a better distribution of, you know, different, uh, you know, market shares, less concentration. It's not clear to me that that's always what you would see if you saw competition, right? Sometimes people win markets or at least win substantial shares of markets. Um, the reason we have labor regulation is because we don't believe that markets left to their own devices will actually result in enough protection for labor or enough of the rents being shared with labor. That's the point of labor law. If people actually thought competition did all of this work in society, again, they'd be pretty hardcore libertarians and would never support any regulation. But they aren't. And they don't. And the reason is that we understand that competition is good at producing certain things, but not necessarily the answer to everything. And you've written recently um, with uh, Josh Wright to the effect that we are, we're currently in a period of inflation. Uh, and so doing things like reviving uh, price discrimination laws that have been long dead is a bad idea. I also saw you recently uh, express your, I think, agreement with Larry Summers's attitude that breaking up efficient companies is not what you want to do if you're trying to fight inflation. Um, so uh, could you comment briefly on, you know, when we look at the neo-Brandeisians, you just mentioned they look at a lot of factors. I'm curious, does and obviously they can speak for themselves, but like, do you see growth uh, as even being compatible with what they are pushing for? Does it still even have a place there or is it sort of, um, we are happy to fight for these other values, uh, let the heavens fall? So a few things are not accidents. It's not an accident that we, what we call the consumer welfare standard, or what I was describing earlier as the re-examination of how courts treat certain kinds of business conduct under the rule of reason, as opposed to the per se rule, started in a period of high inflation. People were thinking in the late 70s a lot, and Lena Khan writes about this, they were thinking a lot about the fact that prices were really high, and that's a big problem. It is a particular problem for the poor. So where does the, our modern antitrust conversation comes from? It comes from virtually zero interest rate environments. It concerns markets where we're not talking about price, as you and I were discussing earlier. In fact, it's preoccupied with the notion that we focus too much on price because there are all these other harms that we're allegedly missing. But here's the thing. Price is really important to people. That's part of why when you look at the recent Pew poll and many other polls lately that are asking Americans what they're most concerned about, it's high prices. It's the high prices that are canceling out the wage gains. Inflation is a major issue. It is deeply socially unsettling. It is costly to the poor. It is disruptive of lives. The notion that right now we are still talking about ideas that have the net effect of raising prices is really troublesome to me. Maybe it was okay. Maybe it was okay and fun to have this conversation where we didn't care about prices, but we do now. And there are a number of instances. You mentioned Robinson Patman enforcement. That's a great example. You have support for small cartels among neo-Brandeisians. Cartels are not good. They're bad. And yes, Maybe you want to think about how nice it sounds to empower the small guy against the big 
you know, the big giant corporation. But let's think about this as a practical matter. Take the following example. You've got a group of doctors and an insurance company. Let's say all the doctors in the town. Well, the insurance company is surely larger than the big company. And if you were, you know, rectifying power imbalances, maybe you'd look to hurt them. But here's the thing. If those doctors get together and set prices, you know who's paying? The insurance company in the first instance, but you. You are paying more for insurance and more for healthcare. And that is not what Americans want. And I think it is high time that a lot of people, and this is what Josh and I were trying to do, actually read the words that are being written in the context of antitrust reform and understood the implications of what people are saying. When they say focus less on price, that means allow prices to be higher, distribute the rents in a way that they find preferable, and screw the consumer. And I think that's the wrong direction. Commissioner Phillips, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. Uh, if you have time for one final question, I'd like to take things in a little more philosophical direction and, and sort of ask a question that is respectful of the fact that you're a, a careful public servant um, and how much I appreciate that. So um, the world is just very complex and economies are complex and uh, it's easy to get things wrong because things are so dynamic. And one thing I look at the FTC and think of in, in one direction is, um, the FTC de facto basically sinking a merger between uh, Blockbuster and Hollywood Video, you know, right as like Netflix streaming is coming up and who could have seen that and it looks terrible. But, you know, I could envision it being the other way where uh, the FTC lets a merger go through and in uh, hindsight, it ends up looking really terrible. It creates some, I don't know, standard oil looking behemoth. Um, it's easy to get it wrong either way. These are choices of extraordinarily high consequence that do affect, they have great economic impact, even apart from trying to expand the FTC's authority to what we've discussed earlier. Um, and you're making those decisions of whether to vote for a merger or block a merger and all this in uh, always in conditions of uncertainty because that's the world. Um, so how do you approach that? I mean, is that a hard responsibility to shoulder? And how do you think about complexity as you uh, proceed to make those impactful decisions? So, Markets are complex. And if you look at the little things that can happen that throw markets into an absolute tailspin, you realize just how complex they are. To me, what you know, this knowledge problem counsels, what that uncertainty counsels is breathing, a fairly good dose of humility, and trying to do the best I can really to look at the facts in the case and weigh the arguments. The instruction of the Clayton Act in particular is one where we have to do some speculation. That's unavoidable. Um, but you want to do the best guesswork that you can with the facts in front of you and the facts as best you know them. And sometimes, uh, even if they are complex, markets at least rhyme over time and you'll have a good basis historically to make a guess. Um, we learn from experience that's good, we should. Um, but ultimately, I think what this counsels is not reducing everything to simplicity, not just listening to slogans, uh, which are often not just wrong, but kind of counter-descriptive. They describe the opposite of what is true um, and thinking carefully. And I think that there are reasonable arguments for adjusting what we call the error cost framework, you know, under what 
level of uncertainty should we intervene in markets and stop them from working? But overcorrecting what I think the chair once said about having no concern whatsoever about going too far. I think I'm getting the wording there a little wrong. I think that's the wrong. Not in her top 10 priorities. Yes. Um, I suppose I could end by saying I worry a little bit more about that. Well, that's an eloquent way to end. Um, Commissioner, this has been such an honor. Thank you once again. Uh, really, really appreciate your time. And I will let you go on to your next thing. Um, Corbin, thank Cor you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure, really. Um, I'm Corbin Barthold. This has been a special episode of the Tech Policy Podcast. Uh, please join us next time. Thank you. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.